All right, let's turn to Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you open up to the middle of the Bible, Psalms, and just turn to the right a little bit, you'll find the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1 through 16 this morning is where we are going to be. So if you'll turn there, when you've got it, say amen. amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 16. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old, fat, old, and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to throne to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in that king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. I want to preach to you this morning on this chapter, and I'm going to tag my sermon today, Ruthless Ambition. It's a bit of a negative title, but I think it captures the essence of the chapter. Ruthless Ambition. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we get into it. Father, we ask that you would help us today. Help me to preach your truth, not merely my ideas, that you would open our hearts to shape us and fashion us according to Jesus' likeness. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Ebenezer Scrooge. Do you know the story? Ebenezer Scrooge. 
the man of wealth, corruption, power, oppression, and loneliness. Charles Dickens wrote a Christmas carol about Ebenezer Scrooge. During the days of George Mueller's England. Now I say that because George Mueller's England, if you know anything about it, was a place of great oppression, great poverty, great problems. George Mueller, when he moved to England as a young pastor, or to Bristol particularly, as a young pastor, he described what he moved into as a, a horrific place. By the time he arrived, the plague, the Great Plague, had wiped out so many parents that there were literally thousands of orphans on the streets with no place to go. He would describe businessmen leaving their places of business with orphans huddled up. I picture them cold, maybe cuddled up under a blanket. And he would say businessmen would literally just step over the children on their way home to work. It was that bad. Now, Mueller was a, a man who could not just simply step over an orphan and walk home and eat his dinner, but rather he had an orphan follow him. And, and he asked the child if the child was hungry. And of course, the child was, and he brought the child in to eat. And the next day, there were 11 other children that showed up. And before you knew it, he was building houses and, and literally creating homes for thousands of orphans. And this began the modern orphanage movement. Now that's the context in which Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. Think about it. Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a man who oppresses others through his use of power, through his abuse of power. He does not pay Bob Cratchit fair wages. He doesn't pay him enough so Bob Cratchit can take care of poor little Tiny Tim's medical needs. Ebenezer Scrooge doesn't hear the cries of the oppressed as ministers come to ask Scrooge for a donation for the orphans. He laughs at them and pushes them out, refuses to help. Ebenezer Scrooge, an envious man who sees the wealth of others and wants to dominate, he never has enough. Ebenezer Scrooge, a lonely man who despises the kids in the streets as he leaves his place of business. There's kids all over the streets. Many of them would have been historically orphans, and he despises them as they're sledding down the hill and about knocking him over. And he goes home, lonely, to his big, beautiful mansion, dark and cold, no friends. No people. No pleasure. What's fascinating about this story is that Charles Dickens shows a man of wealth and a man of success who's miserable. Ebenezer Scrooge is a prototype example of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. As I was reading Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I couldn't help but think of 
this character. I couldn't help but wonder, I wonder, I wonder if Charles Dickens had Ecclesiastes chapter 4 as somewhat of a background, as a profile, as he thought of his character, Ebenezer Scrooge. Don't be a Scrooge. That's my, that's my sermon today. Are you with me? Don't be a Scrooge. Now, usually when people say, oh, you're such a Scrooge at Christmas time, usually what they mean by that is that you don't like Christmas lights and you don't want to put up a Christmas tree and you don't like spending thousands of dollars on Christmas presents and, and your family member's like, oh, stop being such a Scrooge. Don't be a Scrooge. That's not, that's not what I mean. Frankly, I don't care if you put up lights or a tree or the traditions. What I mean by this is don't abuse power to oppress others for your envious, selfish gain, always wanting what someone else has, striving after these things, ending up on this lonely rat race which leads you to a place with nobody. So I'm saying this Christmas and beyond, don't be a Scrooge, are you with me? No. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is what's called wisdom literature in the Bible. It's a certain kind of literature, it's a certain genre of literature, which is intended to be somewhat artistic and creative, and to show us a picture of what life is all about. Now, Ecclesiastes is really artistic and creative. What the author of Ecclesiastes is doing is in his wisdom, he's saying, let's imagine a world without God, and let's see how well we do. And so as we get into Ecclesiastes chapter five, uh, chapter 4, he's imagining the working world. Meaning if you have a job to go to tomorrow, if you work a 9 to 5 or a 3 to 11 or whatever your hours are, if you've got a job where... Uh, uh, you're working for yourself and, and doing your own thing. Or if you have a, a, a job that doesn't make you any money, but you still have some kind of work to do. This applies to you, all right? This applies to all of us. Because we are working people as human beings. And it's almost as if, as soon as he mentions injustice at the end of chapter 3, the author seamlessly moves into work. It's as if you can't think of these two. Injustice, oppression, oh, let's talk about work. Work. When we get to chapter 5, what we're going to see next week is that the remedy to all of this is the fear of God. So in chapter 5, he brings back the vertical into play, and he says, let's talk about God now, what it means to live a life of fearing God. But if we remove the fear of God and we consider a godless society, what does it look like? What, is it, what does work look like in a godless society? And what he does is he paints a picture for us of ruthless ambition. So I want to just look at this picture and draw out for you four characteristics of ruthless ambition this morning. Four characteristics of a working world without the fear of God. Number one, it's oppressive. 
Ruthless ambition is oppressive. Ruthless ambition abuses power. Remember last week we studied for a moment verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. So I'm not going to go deep into these verses. You can listen to last week's sermon and catch up on that. We spent a whole sermon on injustice and oppression. But he's blending this now into work. And it's worth pointing out that all of oppression is an abuse of power. And I would almost say this, I think I can say this, all of work is a stewardship of power. Meaning if you have your, a job, in some fashion you are hired to steward some element of power. And I don't care if that power is just simply with a mop, cleaning the floors, it's still power. So there's, there's power in all that we do. Oppression is the abuse of power for our gain. The abuse of power over those that are weaker, over those we can manipulate, over those we can take advantage of so that we might get something that we want. That's oppression. Don't think of this as like the oppressor over here and the oppressor over there. I think it's a little bit more of a spectrum. And I think sometimes the oppressed are as much of an oppressor as the, the, the oppressor is. Oppression can be all around because abuse can be all around because power is all around. So you might not abuse power at work, but you might abuse power in your home, you see? You might not be abused by power in society, but you might be abused by power at home. Work is power, power abused is oppression. And he looks at this and he says, under the sun, all I see is oppression. People taking advantage of each other. And those that are oppressed have no place to go. They, they, they have no comfort. They have only tears, as we studied last week. Now, in our work, we can be so focused on trying to provide for ourselves and you might even say, man, I'm, <coughs> excuse me, I'm trying to provide for my family. And that's great. You should provide for yourself in work. The Bible says if a man doesn't provide for himself, and if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. So it is right and good to provide. The problem is this, and this is where it turns into oppression. It's when you only care about your family and not other families. You only care about providing for yourself, and you don't have any concern for others. You don't care for the children of others. This is when we begin to create a world that wraps around us and beginning to use our power in oppressive ways. Without God, though, we could put it like this. The self, our self, becomes God. And this is what we live in as an individualistic society today, in which we are all about pursuing our own personal comforts and our personal wealth and personal glory from man to such a degree that the community's value is only seen insofar as they benefit me. It's the community for me, not me, for the community. You see the turn there. And so if the community doesn't provide any benefit for me, then uh, the community is, is something that I should abandon because the self has become God. 
And this creates ruthlessness, a lonely and fickle world. Now, I want you to consider Jesus for a moment. Maybe you're here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian. I want you just to, for 30 seconds here, consider the worldview of faith. Or, before we get to the worldview of faith, I want you to consider your own worldview. You know, without God, if we remove the vertical, what is the worldview of a godless society? It is the survival of the fittest. The fit survive, the strong survive, the powerful survive. Now, if the survival of the fittest worldview is correct, then something like enslavement of a whole people group is actually not wrong, but it's actually right. And it's for the progress of humanity because the strong are dominating the weaker. Or if we could take another example, if there is a, uh, if there is a powerful uh, uh, ruler who is dominating a weaker people group, then there is no reason to stand up for the weak if the survival of the fittest is true. Because to get rid of the weak would actually be for the benefit of the broader human race. Does that make sense? You say, no, it doesn't. The reason that doesn't make sense is because you're a Christian. <laughs> right? But what I'm doing is I'm painting a picture, along with the author of Ecclesiastes, of a world without God. A world that says there is no moral law. There is no understanding. Like, it's all about us making it, us surviving, and the fittest survive. See, even the world bucks at that. Even the world bucks at what I just said. No, we should stand up for the weak. But what I'm saying is this. Why? If there is no God, and there is no moral law, and there is no standard of justice, then why should you stand up for the weak? Why should you stand up for the person who doesn't have an immediate benefit to society? Well, see, the answer is in the word of God. It's because we are not merely bags of chemicals, but rather every human being is created in the image of God and thus has intrinsic value and intrinsic worth and intrinsic dignity. Amen. And so we stand up for another, we pursue a relationship with another, not because of some utilitarian benefit of getting something from them or how they might contribute to society, but because they are image bearers of God. <coughs> Still getting over my cold. Like, change mics again if this continues. <coughs> Doing it. Blame it on my cough. Tell me what we're good. Check one, two. Check one, two. This just gives me time to look at my notes. Good. All right. Everybody good? 
When we come to the Bible, when we come to the Bible, we see life as it is. When we come to the Bible, we see a God who is a God of justice. A God who is a God that has created human beings in his image. And I'm just simply making a case, especially for the doubter in the room. I want you to consider the scriptures. I want you to consider this as God's revealed word. Why is it that you believe these ways? Why is it that you believe intrinsically in right and wrong? It's because you're created in God's image. It's because the law of God is written on your heart. Even though you don't follow it, you know what's right and wrong intrinsically. The Bible shows us that, that morality is not just for religious folks, but it's God's standard for all of us. The Bible shows us our worth and our value, and it shows us then, therefore, that we have sinned not against just man, but we sinned against God. And we need his forgiveness. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you this morning to become a Christian. How? Know that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived. Jesus died the death that you should have died. He took the wrath of God for our sin on his shoulders, on the cross. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death and defeating sin forever. And the Bible simply says this, all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ are forgiven of their sins now. Amen. And one day will stand with God in eternity forever and ever, raised from the dead, free from even the presence of sin. Amen. God is remaking a world. And you're invited to be part of this new creation. Amen? Amen. All right. Number one, oppressive. Second characteristic of ruthless ambition, envious. It's envious. Look at verse 4. He says, Then I saw that all the toil and skill in the world, and, let me start over. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy. Somebody say, Ouch! Oh, I see myself here. All of your skill, all your hard work, all of your honing in on being the greatest. It comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. And he says this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What he's saying is this. The motivation to do well, to succeed at work, is often driven by envy. The, the, the motivation to hone in on your skills and to get another degree and to try to get better and to try to be the best is actually he says it's often driven in a godless society, by envy. By envy. Someone, I, I just heard yesterday, I was listening to the radio, and uh, they, they said, they are talking about some college, I didn't know what college it was, and uh, he said that 90% uh, of his students, the students at his college, were uh, motivated by rivalry. Now this is real practical. What the author is telling us is that the godless man works hard, develops his skills, is on this perpetual rat race because he wants to be someone else. 
He wants that apple. He wants that kind of praise. He wants that kind of money. He wants that bank account. He wants that car. He wants that wife or she wants that husband. They want that life out of envy. And he's saying that's what drives the working world. You know if you have envy. You know if you are motivated by envy, if you are unable to rejoice when a coworker is praised. You know that you have envy. You know that you are driven and motivated by envy when the gifted, someone else who's gifted, feels like a threat to you. You know that you're driven and motivated by envy when you are endlessly comparing yourself to others. And here's the problem with comparison. When you look at someone else, maybe you're comparing someone else of your own age or someone else of your own uh, community that you came from or someone else of your job, you, compare, you begin to compare yourself to others. When you discover that you're doing better than that person, you're proud. You feel good, but it's pride. And when you discover that they are doing better than you, you're crushed. You're miserable. You lose when you compare in an envious kind of way. Now, if we are to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest that at some level we are motivated to do better, not for the glory of man, but out of envy in others, for others. He goes on in verse 5 then to compare this envious kind of workaholism with the lazy. So verse 4 is the workaholic. Verse 5, he says, well, kind of like on the other hand, the fool folds his hands, that means he does nothing, and he eats his own flesh. You see, today, ambition is not always the problem. In our culture today, the lack of ambition is often the problem. Like, I could preach a whole sermon on verse 5. Because some people are like, I don't compare myself to anybody. I don't, I'm not envious. And they're doing nothing. Nothing. They want to work as little as possible. They just simply want to get by. And for some, this is just leaning into others and constantly asking other people, hey, can you give me some money? Can you give me some food? Uh, benefiting off of the work of other people. Whereas others, man, others come from privilege and they got some degrees and they're as lazy as anybody. They got some cush online sort of job. They can work in their pajamas and they get paid for 40 hours a week and they get paid above average and they do 20 hours of work. Their goal is to work as little as possible and make as much possible to fund their wine habit in the evenings. Look, we don't want to work. A lack of ambition is also our problem, you see? So we see our, our world is, he, he's capturing our world here. He's saying, look, some people, some people are enviously motivated to workaholism. 
And others are folding their hands and doing nothing. They're just lazy. He goes on, verse 6 is the way forward. He says, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls full of toil and a striving after the wind. What he's saying is this, is one handful versus two handfuls. So get the picture. The lazy, no handful, folded hands. The workaholic, two hands full, taking on too much out of envy. What he says is better is one handful. A realistic amount of work. And he says one handful of quietness. Quietness in the Old Testament, in, uh, in, in the Bible as a whole, is really a, a kind of a nickname for humility. For instance, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 tells us, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, meaning humility, not striving out of envy to see what everybody else is doing, but rather to lead a quiet life he goes on to say, you should mind your own business and work with your hands. That's, that's the biblical picture of work. The gospel rapper KB put it like this. He says, I know everyone seems more advanced than you, but that ain't your business. You stay faithful. Lift your head and move. You see, a better motivation, a better motivation to work than envy is the glory of Christ. The Christian is one who sees the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in the cross they hear Christ say, it is finished. The greatest work is done. What is that? Well, it's not the work that you're called to do at your job. It's the greatest work. And that is your endless need for approval. It is your need for acceptance. It is your need not to just be right with each other and to have approval from each other, but to find a greater judge who can validate you and give you a thumbs up. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest boss, the greatest judge says, you are So Christians then work out of rest. We're not working, endlessly striving, looking at what everybody's doing, frantically trying to be like others, but rather we work from a place of solid rest in Jesus Christ. We work out of a place of approval. We work out of a place of victory, knowing that God is for me. And God has said I'm right. God has said I'm good. God has said I'm valuable. I don't even have to achieve all of these great things that I want to achieve because God has already said I'm his child in Jesus Christ. And you know what that does? It actually allows us to have freedom to work well. Because the, 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 the person that works well is the person who can focus on the task at hand and stop looking around at everybody else. Stop comparing their lives to everybody else. They can get off of Google, they can get off of Twitter, they can get, get away from all of these things and say, let me just steward what God has given me because I am a worker for God. 
not driven by envy. So, ruthless ambition, number one, oppressive, number two, envious, number three, oh wait, I'm sorry, got away from my notes. I got three quick points for you, all right? On motivation, number one, work knowing that approval is already yours. I just said that. You got it? Somebody say amen. amen. Number two, work knowing that eternity is what most matters. So even at your secular job, eternity is your driving factor. To glorify God with the opportunities he's given you, but also to make much of the opportunities for the glory of God. As one old preacher once put it, he says, my motivation is to be number one on the devil's most wanted list. What if that was our ambition? What if that replaced your envy? Work knowing eternity most matters. Number three, work knowing that God has made us to be useful. It's been said that true ambition is the profound desire to live usefully. Think about it. And walk humbly under the grace of God. Like, what if you're, you had this profound desire to live usefully? You want it to be useful. Oh, that sounds humble, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like it's driven by envy. It sounds like you want to be useful. Why? Because you want to walk humbly under the grace of God. What does the scripture says, Colossians 3.23? It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not all right, number three, third characteristic of ruthless ambition, and that is loneliness. Loneliness. Like Scrooge, he is the epitome of loneliness. You see, being motivated and driven by envy does not win you any friends. But rather, others simply become tools to advance your career. With envy, driven by envy, we look at others and we ask ourselves, what can I get out of them? These are not friends along the journey, but rather others for us merely become measures of success that we want to try to strive for. So look at the result here, verse 7 and 8. He says, again, I saw under the sun one person who has not another, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Look at this. He's successful. He's wealthy, yet he's deprived of pleasure. Don't you see that God is for your pleasure, not against it? Even in this attack on this kind of rat race toward wealth and success, he's actually still for your pleasure. Because what he's saying is, is you can arrive at all of that and have no people. And it's people that makes life pleasurable. Not money. Not a great house. He's deprived of pleasure. The wealthy man has everything but no pleasure. This problem then is explained in verse seven and eight, and then in verse nine through 12, he gives us proverbs, uh, which create a lesson for us 
on this issue of the necessity for community. So imagine, here's verses 9 through 12, imagine that you're going on a long journey. And this is by foot. This is in the ancient world. Verse 9 and 10, he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up the other fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So if you imagine uh, she's on a journey and it's nighttime and she falls into a pit and she's the kind of person who has said, oh, I am, I am my own self. I need nobody for this journey. Everybody else will slow me down. I'm an individual. He's saying, whoa to her, who falls into the pit and has no one to help him. This has a couple of different implications, doesn't it? We could apply this to work. You know, if you are the kind of person that is uh, prideful and unwilling to collaborate with others, when you fall, when you stumble, when you're hurting, you've got nobody else coming to you. Because they don't even know you. This applies spiritually for sure. You know, how many people say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't need church. I don't need the people of God. And they're susceptible to the devil's attacks. They don't even realize it when they're starting to slip into temptation. Because they have nobody to even help them stay on the journey. And pretty soon they are completely fallen away from Jesus. And there's nobody to lift them out of that pit. And it is deadly sense. The, the analogy goes on, verse 12. He says, again, if, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? This is not just referring to intimacy and marriage, lying together, but rather this would probably have been a traveling kind of proverb. Because in the ancient world, when they're traveling, it would get cold and you have to sleep outside. And ancient travelers would sleep together in order to stay warm, to stay alive through them. And he's saying, if you're out there on this journey alone, you don't have anybody, you've got nobody to keep you alive at night. You've got no warmth. Verse 12 goes on with the analogy, and though, he says, a man may prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and the threefold cord is not broken. So now he's saying, now on the journey, imagine if a robber comes, and you're all alone. On your own, you will not prevail, he said. But if you've got another, if you've got a number two, you'll be okay. And then he says, and a threefold cord, meaning if you've got three people, you know, if somebody, if you, want, if you want to try to rob me, get me while I'm alone. And that'll be your best bet. But if I got Mike Roach with me, See, see the analogy here. Two fight better than one. And if there's three of us, I got, now I got Casey as well. And so now Casey puts him in a headlock. And I'm coming in with the knee. Mike Roach just does one of these. And I'm taking a selfie, right? You can't, a three-fold floor, you can't break that. We need community. Are you with me? We need community. Scrooge has no community. 
Scrooge is caught up in the rat race, and he has no pleasure because he has no people. He's not cultivating friendships. He's not keeping friendships. He doesn't have a relationship with his brother anymore because he's been too busy at work. He doesn't have time to call him. He might have some kids, but he ignores his kids. See, some people are claiming in their workaholism to provide for their family, and that's why they do it. But Derek Kidner said it well. He said, yet, his heart is elsewhere. Even though he claims to provide for his family, he says he's, he's actually devoted and wedded to his projects. Meaning even in our claims, I'm doing this for a good reason, we could just simply be deceiving ourselves. Saints, don't miss people in your work ambition. Don't miss people in your work ambition. Let me just give you three tips. Just a starting point. Number one, carve out Sundays for people. One of the oldest traditions of the church, the Christian church, is to acknowledge Sundays as the Lord's Day and to set it aside for the worship of God and for people. Now, some have jobs that they have to work on a Sunday, and that's understandable. But we have to ask ourselves, are we working, working, working out of envy, out of greed, or is it truly necessary? Can I carve it out for people? I know of one church, a friend of mine visited, and they said that after the service, they had three invitations for dinner in members' homes. That, that sounds, isn't that amazing? Like, what if we could have such a culture of Sundays as a time for people that a visitor would be unable to visit here without getting some invitations to lunch? Carve out Sundays. That's just a tip. Number two, aim to be a connector in life. Meaning, don't wait to be connected. Be a connector. Initiate friendships. Genuinely care about somebody else. Not just the kind of person that you think you can get something from, but somebody that you might not naturally be interested in. And you'll discover that as you genuinely care, them, care for them and get to know them, that they are vastly interested. Number three, don't simply work to provide for others, but bless others with your time. I want to speak specifically to fathers, dads. Time at home on video games or watching TV is not time with your kids. Just because we're physically in the house doesn't mean we're with our kids. Are you with me? Someone says, well, I'm, I'm playing video games with my son. All right, all right, all right. We're not going to argue. I'm just saying. I'm using a principle here. Let's seek to give our children, our families, our presence. This applies to mothers, wives. This applies to singles. As you consider your own free time outside of work, as it relates to people, 
Are we just consuming ourselves? As he says in verse 5, they eat their own flesh. Or are we giving ourselves to others in friendship and in love, in community? But how much more blessed are we, church, that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother? Somebody say amen. amen. He came down from heaven, not only to meet us at the pit, but he went into the depths of the pit with us to rescue us from the pit. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained with sin, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love, saints, lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. The whole story of salvation boasts a God who has entered into a relationship with us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the question I want to ask you is this. Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And if you do, it changes everything. In the way that we see the world, in the way that we see one another. Ruthless ambition doesn't understand this. But the God who made all things made you more than simply one to strive after success and money. We are part of a beautiful human race, loved by God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you found a friend in Jesus? And is he everything to you? Oh, Jesus Christ is a friend like no other, amen? amen? Run to this friend. Be transformed by this friend. What a friend he is. What a friend is Jesus. Number four, the ruthless world is fickle. We'll close with this, verses 13 through 16. I want to show you the fickleness of the world. In verse 13 through 16, the author turns into what I can only describe as a sort of parable in the wisdom literature. He sees a young boy who is from poverty. And he also sees a king who is old. Now the boy, though he's poor, is driven by wisdom. The king, though he's old, and as a king, he's driven by foolishness. As his story goes on, we discover that the boy also comes from prison. In these days, it was common to get locked up, not because of crime that you did, but for economic reasons. Perhaps his family had a debt that they could not pay. And so not only does he come from poverty, but he comes from prison. This is a true rags to riches story. Because as he goes on, though he was from poverty, though he grew up in poverty in the king's kingdom, he is the one to take the place on the throne of the king. And one day, the boy reigns on the throne of the king. And he says, I see all these masses of humanity, all of these endless numbers of people, and all of them are following this king, this boy king. However, the climax of this story is in verse 16. 
In verse 16, he says, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. What he's saying is this. This is like the nail in the coffin. He's saying, if you arrive at being a king through wisdom, and you're actually a good king from rags to riches, oh, the people celebrate but he says, then later on, because people are fickle, there comes a time when they no longer rejoice in the king. What he's saying is this, is saying, even if you arrive at the top of where you want to be, with wisdom guiding you, if you're doing that for the glory of man, be warned. You'll get some praise, but people are fickle, and pretty soon they will not rejoice in you. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. And he's saying it's all vanity. It's all nothing without God. Let me summarize this chapter. What, the way I would summarize this is I would say this. We should work out of concern for others. Our problem as humans, however, is that we work for our own success, our own wealth, our own glory. Our problem is that we work for the glory of man, not the glory of God. And by the way, religious institutions can do this as well. Just because an institution is called religious, or a Christian doesn't mean that they might not be driven by a ruthless ambition. Just simply look at the Pharisees. Yeah. And the secular world despises that and throws out all of religion as a result of that and says, I want nothing to do with religion. Yet they're driven by survival of the fittest. And they do the same thing. Christ came. And Christ showed us that the greatest kind of work, and this is surprising, the greatest kind of work is not to bolster self, but to give self. The greatness of Jesus is seen in that he lived his whole life out of service for another. His glory was not seen in success. His glory was not seen in wealth. His glory is not seen in the glory of man. But Jesus' glory is seen in the greatest act of service as he's lifted on the cross. That's where we see the glory of God. In the Savior of Jesus Christ on Mount Calvary. The greatest glory that Christ accomplished is that he worked for us. The greatest glory is him serving another. It's selflessness. It's self-sacrifice. It's self-giving. Meaning the greatness of Jesus. Are you with me? The greatness of Jesus is that his whole life is lived in service of others. The greatest glory worked for is in service for others. His whole mission is to achieve a kingdom for the benefit of another. And you would say, wait a second, I thought Jesus achieved the kingdom for his benefit. Well, first it was for your benefit. 
He didn't need to come and die for us, but he did it for your benefit. And then once he dies for us, you know what he does? He gives the kingdom to the Father. And the Father, this gift giving just continues. The Father then gives the kingdom back to the Son and says, She's yours. Here's your bride. Oh, the heights of glory is seen in service. And so his people rejoice forever. They rejoice forever. Revelation 5, worthy is the Lamb. We sing it forever and ever and ever. No more fickle saints. We are remade. And we rejoice in this king forever and ever and ever. True success, true glory is in the, is in the service of others. You will not find this under the sun. You only discover this as we come to the Word of God and we see that the one above the sun became man. Oh, a rags to riches story? How about this? It's a riches to rags story. The one who had everything, the one who had heaven, gave it all up to come to earth to die for us. Riches to rags. I can't help but see the parallel between this story and Jesus' story. You see, there was another youth who was born into poverty. He was born to a lowly virgin named Mary, a carpenter's son. And this one, as he grew, preached a kingdom. And on that Palm Sunday, he entered into Jerusalem, and they rejoiced in him. Oh, but the crowds are fickle, aren't they? And there came a time that they no longer did rejoice in this king. Yet, I see the parallel, but there's something very different about these kings. Even his rejection was part of God's plan. Even in his rejection, he was not out of control. And as they rejected him and nailed him to a cross, it was part of his plan to be great to demonstrate true greatness. And three days later, the king rose from the dead. He got up from the grave, saying, somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I wonder if any of you can praise him for establishing his kingdom. I wonder if you can rejoice that he upholds his kingdom with justice and with righteousness from that time on and forever. And one day, saints, this king is coming again. The kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of the Lord, and he shall reign forever and ever. And we, his people, will rejoice in this king forever and ever. And so let's praise him now. Let's rejoice in this king now, for he is worthy.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For Jesus, we give you praise for our redemption. God, let us be driven by the glory of Christ, even as we think of something as practical as our work, I think. May we see Jesus and his work as not only for us and driving us, but also as our example to live our lives in service of others that we might be useful in this temporal world and all the more in that eternal kingdom that is to come. In Jesus' name.